This is episode 229 of That Shakespeare Life. That Shakespeare Life is supported in part by listeners like you who join our listener community on Patreon. You can join us as a patron right now at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. And stay tuned after the episode for more details about what's inside. There is an animal named Anamadeo that resembles in shape a horse with a pack saddle. It is like a beast of burden. On its back, it has a natural pack saddle from under which its feet and tail protrude. It is the size of a dog. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. With international explorations happening to North and South America in the 1580s and 1590s, there were a lot of exotic animals new to the English mindset coming back to England for the life of William Shakespeare. Many members of the nobility in 16th century England made a hobby out of collecting wild and exotic specimens of animals that were being discovered and brought to Europe by explorers, travelers, and naturalists who were keen to record all of the world's animals. One animal that was new to Shakespeare's England during his lifetime was the armadillo. One prime example of the armadillo in the culture of the 16th century is the armadillo featured in a piece of embroidery by Mary, Queen of Scots. Our guest this week, Peter Mason, writes about this specific armadillo in his article, Mary's Armadillo, for New World Objects of Knowledge, a Cabinet of Curiosities. Peter joins us this week to share the history of the armadillo, where it came from originally, how it arrived in Europe, and the many different variances from scale to fur that encompasses the depictions of the armadillo we find from Shakespeare's lifetime. British-Italian author Peter Mason studied literae humanores at the University of Oxford and anthropology at the University of Ulrich. Best known for deconstructing America representations of the other and infelicities representations of the exotic, he has lectured and published widely on the history of art and visual culture in Europe and the Americas. He has been visiting professor in Santiago de Chile and Madrid. Peter lives in Rome and is currently preparing an introduction to Ulysses Aldrovandi to be published by the Chicago University Press in spring 2023. Hello, Peter. Welcome to the show. Hello, Cassidy. Glad to make it at last. Are armadillos native to England? No, certainly not. They are native to South America. They originated in South America. Most of them are still only in South America. A few species migrated up to the south of the United States and, and, and Mexico. There are about 20 known species which are still non-extinct, and they are all South American. So, no, there, there won't have been any from England. Well, what about live armadillos in England? Were they ever yeah. brought alive to the country during Shakespeare's yeah. lifetime? If there were any... They must have arrived on merchant ships, and that would have been London, probably, as the obvious place for any kind of exotic commodities like Amadeus to arrive in. Uh, the problem is that the British didn't start going to America until the 1580s, 1590s, with the early expeditions, which were to, to North America, uh, to Virginia, 
which it, it probably didn't have any armadillos then because most of the spreading to the north took place relatively recently. Uh, so it's unlikely that the British themselves would have brought any back. Now, the other possibility, of course, is continental trade because there were armadillos around in France. We know that from the middle of the 16th century. And so some enterprising merchant or some curious traveler could have brought back an armadillo. They travel quite well, the smaller ones particularly. So that would have been theoretically possible. I haven't come across any references to live armadillos going around in England. Dead ones, people had them on display, especially apothecaries, apothecaries' shops, because the shells were very easy to preserve. In fact, the earliest images that we find about armadillos from the 1520s are on maps uh, where they show our medios connected with South America. And they were the easiest thing to transport when they were dead, but not when they were alive. So why were armadillos featured so prominently in artwork of this period? Ah, well, because, as I just said, they are specific to South America. So if you want to, for instance, show the four continents, as they were at the, at the time before, then you would choose, for instance, an animal which would connote, say, an elephant for Africa. And if you want to find something for South America, and at the time we're talking mainly about South America, the armadillo is a, a good choice because it's easily identifiable and you can't mistake it for anything else. And so we find it on allegories of the four continents right from the third quarter of the 16th century, possibly earlier, but most of them are from the towards the end of the century. And, and by then, we can assume, I think, that there were enough of them circulating for artists to be able to get some idea of what they actually look like. Some of the earliest images I know of, very lifelike images of Amadeus, so these are more scientific representations than artworks, let's say, are from the 1550s. So around then, people did know what Amadeus were looking like. On what kind of a scale that would have been, we don't know. Uh, when I say allegories of the four continents, then these are, could have been allegories which were painted in buildings, so decorations inside basically the homes of people who could afford to have that kind of thing done. You might even find them in monuments outdoors, but that tends to be later, I think that's mainly the following century, so when Shakespeare would have been dead. Peter writes that armadillos were originally native to South America and came to Europe by way of Brazil. Peter, where could armadillos be found in Europe? You mentioned France and some naturalists. You're also citing some artwork from the 1550s that were more scientific. Can you tell us about how these drawings came about? I know that some people like Conrad Gessner, for example, would often draw drawings of animals um, that he saw in person or that people who had seen them described yeah. to him. So in the case of armadillos, yeah. how were they completing these drawings? What were they using? Yeah, yeah. The earliest image we have of, uh, of an armadillo where the, uh, the person responsible for the description uh, says that I saw this animal live, that is the French naturalist Pierre Berlon. And interestingly, he didn't see it in South America because he never went to South America. He saw it on the market in Constantinople. And he traveled very widely indeed, including in the Middle East. When he was in Constantinople, he, he mentions he saw an video on the market. And when he described his travels, his artist uh, included an image of an video, which was uh, widely copied by other people. Conrad Gesner had 
uh, his own networks for obtaining images. So whether he saw Amadeus himself is a moot question. But all of these people were trying to get images from people who might have seen an Aramidio. Another person who probably saw them, although he didn't include images in his work, is André Teve, another French naturalist, well, not naturalist, another French traveler who went to Brazil, was there for about 10 weeks, um, was associated with the French court. And he would certainly have known about Amadeo, has probably seen some in Brazil. They are eaten in a lot of countries, so he might even have tried a little bit of one. And these were travellers whose published accounts were then published with images. Today didn't include any images of the Arvedio, but guess they would have had access to these kinds of people uh, who would have been able to provide him with images uh, which he could then use. Um, it, it, I just mentioned that Gessner's Arvedio looks very different from the Belong one. So there, there was some diversity at the time in what people could get their hands on. In Peter's publication titled Mary's Armadillo for New World Objects of Knowledge, a Cabinet of Curiosities, he outlines a history of Mary's needlework armadillo that she completed in the 16th century. Peter, would Mary have consulted some of the naturalist's drawings as the model for her armadillo? Yeah, we know she did. Um, Mary was very cultivated. She grew up in the French court. Her mother-in-law was Caterina de' Medici, uh, who introduced the refined taste of the Italian court to Paris. Mary grew up speaking French better than English. And at the time, we should remember that Scotland had very close ties with France. There were French gardeners working in Scotland. There's a lot of Renaissance decoration in Scotland, which not that many people know about, which includes some of these features, including images of animals. So Mary was a learned person. Uh, She was in captivity for about 16 years. And during that time, she and the other ladies with her in Chatsworth House and other places spent their time, um, I like to think of it as the, uh, the, swish, the sessions of sweet, silent thought, as somebody wrote, where they would while away the time doing their needlework, which was one of the skills which Catalina de Medici had brought to the French court. But she did a number of works, of it's not technically embroidery, but needlework with plants on them. And we know that the plants match images in the Book of Plants by the Italian Mattioli. So there's a direct source for her plants. When it comes to the animals, her source is more diverse. I've tried to show that the animadillo that she has on one of these pieces is a copy of the Belon, uh, animadillo, which she saw on the market in Constantinople. Um, and as I said, it differs considerably from Conrad Gessner's. So I think we can be fairly clear that it, she was using Belon's. I mentioned her connection with the French court because when she was in France, uh, André Teve, the traveller who had come back from Brazil and uh, worked for four successive French kings, was also at the French court. Uh, it's quite likely that she came across people who had seen animals directly or had come back with drawings or had drawings made after they came back, indicating to artists, this is what an Amadeo looked like. So she was very well connected with these circles. She also corresponded with a number of people on the continent without any difficulty. Uh, so she's an interesting example of how images of, in this case, South American animal ended up in needlework of uh, the Queen of Scots. Now, you mentioned that Gessner's version of the armadillo was quite different from Bellon. And I wonder if you can give us some of the famous examples from this period. Were there times when the armadillo was drawn incorrectly? 
I'd give an example. At the end of the century, um, Charles de Lecluse, uh, also known as Carolus Clusius, is a Flemish uh, naturalist. Uh, he wanted images of all kinds of things. And he wrote to uh, somebody called Jacques Plateau in Tournai, who had his own little museum, to say, could you send me images of some of the Amadeo we should go out? And so he, he sent him images as they came in, and Clusius used them to eventually publish three different images of different uh, versions of Amadeo's. So in that case, these are the kind of images which were coming in, and he is attempting to reproduce a drawing which might be of a dead animal. Um, and when we get to some of the more, let's say, allegorical images, uh, I'm thinking of a, a series of prints of the four allegories. Then you get America. Most of the personifications of the continents are women. So she's a woman sitting on a giant armadillo. And that particular armadillo has two little horns at the front, making it look quite devilish, uh, which suggests that the animal had sinister connotations for some people. And when it comes to representations which are a bit hard to imagine that it is an armadillo, there's, there's a Turkish one from around the end of the 16th century, which is an early Turkish account in, in Ottoman Turkish of the early accounts of, of the discovery of America and what people found there. And the author obviously had never seen any of these things. And the manuscripts include images of a number of the animals, the possum and an armadillo. And I'd say that the text uh, mentions there is an animal named armadillo that resembles in shape a horse with a pack saddle. It is like a beast of burden. On its back, it has a natural pack saddle from under which its feet and tail protrude. It is the size of a dog. Well, on the basis of that, his artist then did a mini miniature horse coming up to about the size of a man's knees with the head and the tail of a horse. And on its back, it has a woven blanket with a fringe around the edge. Uh, which looks very sweet. Uh, it is not at all like what an armadillo looks like. But if somebody says it looks a bit like a little horse, armadillo meaning an armoured horse, so it looks like the sort of horses that went into battle or in parades which were carrying heavy armour and decorations. Uh, this is how some artists might have thought that it looked. There's a German plaque, of once again, of, supposed to be of America, which has an animal in the background, which is very clearly rhinoceros. And rhinoceroses do not come from South America. But when Sir Walter Raleigh was in Guiana, he describes the Anudio, and he said it is barred over with small plates, somewhat like a rhinoceros. And so it's quite possible that what looks to us and to anybody else like a rhinoceros in this uh, plaque I'm talking about from the late 16th century um, is actually meant to be a representation of an armadillo by somebody who didn't know what they looked like and thought it looks like a little armoured animal. It must be a kind of mini, miniature rhinoceros. So, so yeah, the armadillo could, armadillo could get represented in a variety of shapes and sizes. The problem of size is that if you haven't seen one, you haven't seen a, sh you, you have to guess a bit at the size. If somebody says it's about the size of a dog, and there are big dogs and little dogs. Some some armadillos are very small. You fit them in the palm of hand. Only one of only one or two of them can actually roll up like hedgehogs because they're small. So there is quite a diversity out there. And artists they were doing um, armadillo sometimes got the species a bit mixed.
Now, you mentioned that the armadillo was used to represent South America in a display of the four continents. And you also mentioned that the the Germans and I believe uh, at least one other sketch from the period used an armadillo to represent the Americas, including North America. So was there a transition happening here for what the what section of the world the armadillo was intended to represent or when when did the armadillo become known as associated with a, a the north america as opposed to south america or what did it represent both initially because the when columbus arrived he arrived in in caribbean and south america he didn't go to north america at all and so america uh, from the european discovery on meant south america and bits of central america until uh, the later expeditions started to, to to travel to the north, and it's just the, that's toward the end of the 16th century. So that's the that's the 1580s, right? Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, for instance, uh, there's the expedition from 1585 to Virginia, a British expedition, with an artist John White who came back with images, but uh, not an armadillo because there probably weren't any in Virginia in 1585. Probably went up later. And it becomes applied to the whole continent, basically, when the word America refers to the whole continent rather than the South. In early maps, America is referring to mainly Brazil. So it still tends to have a specificity. If if I think of, say, the mid-17th century, uh, in, in the Piazza Navona in Rome, we have the, the Fountain of the Four Rivers by uh, Bertandini, and there is sculpted there and that river is the Rio de la Plata, the river plate in Argentina, so it is still connected with South America in that in that allegory when I say South America, I also want to include central Mexico because once once it was possible to cross by land from South to North America, uh, they could move up which, which is what gradually happened. And uh, we know that, the, for instance, in the 16th century, there were some armadillos in, in Mexico. And the, in fact, the, the tail of the armadillo had a, the powder of the tail uh, was used as a remedy, uh, medicinally against, as a remedy for certain ailments. Uh, so, yes, the, uh, the Mexicans knew about it. They had it. Uh, but that's about as north as it gets uh, in the 16th century. I know we would love to learn more about the armadillo and its history during Shakespeare's lifetime. What are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to learn more? There is a good book which does the let's say the chronological history of animals from America uh, in publications. I think I sent actually the title. It's, it's about New World Animals. That's a book from 2005. And that's quite useful, although it's not very good on images. It's, it tells you about descriptions of armadillos in the various texts amongst all the other animals. I don't really like to mention my own publications. I did do a book called Before Disenchantment, which is published by the University of Chicago Press, uh, which has quite extensive discussions of uh, armadillo and a number of other South American animals, and especially the images of them. It's mainly about images, not the texts. So it's, if you like, it's a complement to the other one. And I'd just like to mention this read, well, this collection of articles by edited by Mark Turner and Juan Pimentel called uh, A New World Cabinet of Objects, I think it's called, which came out last year. And it's also, I think, Creative Commons. So it, it's probably available to more people than the average printed book would be, although it is also in print. 
which is remarkable because every contributor focuses on an image and describes something about that images which is connected with the Americas and has traveled a long way and passed through various hands. I mentioned the Armadillo in that book, but, but each author has a fascinating, let's say, micro-history or, or mini-story of the, the, the travels of biography, if you like, of one artwork or one image, doesn't have to be an artwork, uh, which came from South America and travelled to various places. Um, so I'd recommend that. It's, it's a very nice book to dip into, very accessible. We will link to these resources as well as Peter Mason's work on the armadillo in the show notes for today's episode. So make sure you go there to see these links and to find where you can explore further. Now, Peter, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. (laughs) I think it would have to be La Divina Commedia. Because it's long, assuming that I might be on the island for a long time. I, I find it fascinating. I could read it and reread it and reread it. Since it is long, that would last me a very long time indeed. And I just love it. I think it's wonderful poetry, wonderful images. Uh, it's a wonderful use of language. And I think the transition from Inferno through Purgatorio to Paradiso would be uh, very welcome if I was stranded on a desert island thinking that eventually there'll be some escape. And if I think about the last line, e quindi oscimo a ritedere le stelle, the idea that at the end you get out and you see the stars, um, I think that would be kind of giving me hope if I was stranded there looking for a sail on the distant horizon. <laughs> Certainly the right, the right book to keep you motivated for, for sure. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? What I'm working on, well, I've got uh, a book coming out in the spring on Ulisse Altrovandi. Um, Ulisse Altrovandi was a, a collector in Bologna. He had the largest natural history collection in Europe in his day, 16th century. I'm, I'm doing a, a book on him once again. It will be published by Chicago because there isn't actually a monograph on this remarkable naturalist in English. In fact, there isn't one in any language. So it's, it's, I think it's about time that somebody, yeah, somebody did one. So I've, I've done it and it, it will be coming out in the spring. That's so that's fantastic. the next um, public appearance. <laughs> I am really looking forward to this. That sounds exciting. Peter Mason, thank you so much for being here and taking us through the history of the armadillo. This has been a really fun conversation and I appreciate you being here. Cassidy, thank you very much. I've enjoyed every minute. If you like the show today, be sure to let us know about it. Drop us a comment and a rating on the platform you're listening from today. If you would like to see a picture of Mary's embroidery, as well as some of the sketches and drawings of the armadillo that we talked about in today's episode, then be sure to stop by the show notes for our episode today. Inside the show notes, you can see more visual content that coordinates with the armadillo history you learned about today, along with more information about our guest, Peter Mason, and the places you can follow his work. Find all of these things at CassidyCash.com slash episode 229. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP229. 
If you would like to be a part of supporting our show and helping us bring more Shakespeare history to the airwaves here each week, then consider joining our listener community on Patreon. You can support the show directly and access bonus content while you're there. Some things like video versions of the show, animated versions of Shakespeare's plays, exclusive documentary films, and more. Plus, there are even special patron extras like digital downloads and a monthly Shakespeare book club. Explore all the benefits of being a member with us here at That Shakespeare Life and sign up today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. Our show this week is researched and produced by Cassidy Cash and our audio engineering wizard is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.